Alright, good morning everybody. Let's go ahead and get started here. Greetings to everybody online. Um, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, you're not Pastor Rody. Uh, in which case, you are correct. I am Vicar Belcher. Uh, I will be, Pastor Rody and I are going to be alternating our uh, catechetical class uh, up until Easter. We're going to be taking turns each week covering something in this small catechism. And um, today's my week, and I'm going to be talking today just a little bit about just we're just going to lay the the theological foundation, sort of just in these very uh, um, introductory pages in the small catechism, the explanation that is. Um, but before we do that, let's begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. So, um... We have officially, I think, I think we have sold out of small catechisms. Uh, they went out like hotcakes, and uh, I think we, we may have some more in the church office, but uh, please, if you don't have one of these here, the most recent edition put out by CPH of Martin Luther's Small Catechism with Explanation, please do pick one up. You'll, you will definitely need it for this class and also a Lutheran study Bible, Lutheran study Bible. As Pastor said last week, I would reiterate this. Um, these are the two works that you really want to have in your home. You definitely want to have these. And uh, if I could just add one thing, it might be a hymnal, our, our uh, Lutheran service book. Um, it's a wonderful resource. I know with my family, uh, this may not be for everybody, but we sing a hymn every night before we uh, go to bed. And uh, we lay our little one down. We all sing together as a family. And we pray. And it's just a, a wonderful, very wholesome thing to do. It helps us to learn our, our hymnody, too. Uh, we found it to be a very uh, uh, beneficial thing to do, just to kind of close up the day. So in any case, um, so Pastor Rudy last week did kind of a an introduction to the catechism, okay? He just kind of walked through all of its constituent parts here. He, he made the great point that Luther's catechism really is, is quite small, and it, you know, hence the name small catechism, right? It's only just a little, just a few pages, really, at the very beginning of this thing. The rest of this whole text is explanation, okay? And um, as I said, he just kind of went through the lay of the land of this book and showed you what all uh, we have in this book. You know, what are the resources, the tools at your disposal in this great book? And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So um, if you guys will open up to page 43, we will begin here with the introduction, okay? So I thought I would just begin by saying, you know, a lot of times in this class, um, generally, we, um, <laughs> we we do spend a lot of time, especially in the last class where we talked about the desire for eternal life. You know, we, it was just very, you know, our thoughts, our minds were up in the heavens. I mean, it was just very, uh, just magnificent. It was wonderful. It was grandiose and just thought-provoking. It was challenging. It was mysterious and all of that. And it's it's you know that is a wonderful thing to do. Nevertheless, it's also a very good and beneficial, a pious thing to just go back over the basics, 
okay, to, to go and, and revisit the very foundation, the roots, if you will, and to kind of, if you will, get your hands in the dirt. Where, what is the very foundation of our faith? Right? If you imagine the Christian faith as this grand edifice, this palace, you know, there's so much beauty and wonder and awe to take in. There's many rooms to visit and things to learn about and, and all of these things. And yet, there is no shame whatsoever in every now and then diverting your attention and just focusing specifically on the foundations of our faith. There's no shame in that. And, uh, you know, this is something that we try to instill in our confirmands, that the small catechism, as Luther will say, is not something that you ever outgrow. You never, we never learn what's in this book completely and fully such that we just say, okay, I've graduated from that, let's put that away and move on to other things, you know. Luther himself read this book that he, you know, this, his small catechism like a child, every day, every day, like a child he would read it, as if he didn't know anything. And um, even as an old doctor of theology, he would always return to this and the, and the truths therein. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And um, again, this is something that we instill in our confirmands. This is always something, I mean, you can never learn the truths of the catechism too thoroughly. You always, there's always something new to discover. There's always uh, room for you to, to revisit these fundamentals of our faith. Okay, so there's no shame in this. Um, in fact, it's, it's quite beneficial. So uh, again, let's, let's flip to page 43. And what we're going to do um, at the beginning here is just talk about the, we're going to make a distinction between the objective faith that we as Christians hold um, and a subjective faith, that trust which we all have as individuals in the promises of God. Okay, so there's an objective Christian faith and a subjective way of talking about the Christian faith. Okay, so on page 43, question one, what is the Christian faith? If somebody were to ask you this, this is a fine way to answer. Okay, the, the Christian faith, and notice the definite article here, the Christian faith. It's not a Christian faith. It's not a certain kind of Christian faith. It's the Christian faith. The Christian faith is the confession that Jesus Christ is the world's only Savior and Redeemer confession. So basically what we're doing here is we are saying the same thing as, the Greek word is homologeo, so saying the same thing as Holy Scripture teaches. Okay, We confess that which the Holy Scriptures themselves confess, they profess to be true. Okay, So if you will turn in your Bibles, if you keep a, a, a pen or a finger there and open in your Bibles to, in the New Testament, the book of Jude, all the way towards the end. And we will see uh, St. Jude talk about this in a, in a helpful way. So just before the book of Revelation, it's only one chapter. The book of Jude. Okay. So starting in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, notice what he says there. I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. One faith. Okay, and this is just what St. Paul says in uh, Ephesians. 
We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay, there is an objective faith, this body of teaching that we as Christians are given to believe. It's that which we have. It's the content of what we believe. Okay, the Christian faith. It's it's outside of anything that we might think or say or do. It is the faith. Okay. And that's what the, the small catechism is getting at. That's what uh, uh, Jude is getting at here when he says, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Okay? Um, yes, so the, conf- it, the Christian faith is the confession that Jesus Christ is the world's only Savior and Redeemer. And on page 43 of your small catechism, you'll note uh, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else that is apart from Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so Jesus is the only way to the Father, and that is his mission. He has come, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but the mission of Jesus is he was sent by the Father to reconcile the world to God by his life, death, and resurrection. That is the mission of Christ, to restore us to communion fellowship with the Father. That's his goal. Okay, And um, it is only in Christ that we are saved. He is the world's only Savior and Redeemer. Um, Let's see. Yes, so um, under the note on page 43, you'll see uh, down below it says note. Um, So it says the term Christian was first used at Antioch. This question speaks of the content of the faith that we confess as Christians. Later, we describe the faith by which each individual Christian trusts in Jesus. This is what I've been talking about. There's an objective faith and a subjective faith that we as Christians recognize. Okay? So who is Jesus Christ? All right? This again, these are very basic questions, very basic questions. Questions that we need to be able to answer and point to clear passages in scripture that tell us these very fundamentals of our faith. Jesus, so who is Jesus? Jesus is true God and true man in one person. Okay, so pop quiz. Pop quiz. True or false? Jesus is 50% God and 50% man. False. What's the right answer then? What is it? 100% God, 100% man. Right, exactly. Now, these things, this doesn't make rational sense. How can he be fully God and fully man? Well, this is, this is, it doesn't matter what we, like, how are we try and, and reason that out. It's what the scriptures teach to be true, and so we believe it. That's what the scriptures say. That's what we, that's what we teach. Okay? And um, the patristic period, if you, just in case you're interested, the fourth century was a golden age of patristic uh, writings and, and teachings of the fathers of our faith, and there, it was just racked with all kinds of Christological controversy, most notably the Arian controversy that held that Jesus was only a creature. Okay, he was the first of God's works of old, and um, you know that he that Christ is not actually God by nature. Okay, and there was a whole controversy. It split the church, and it was a, it was a horrible thing. It was a horrible thing. But um, even so, so you can see how important these things are. So if Christ, for example, is not God by nature, uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. And the Arians would say all kinds of blasphemous, horrible things like Christ, because he is limited, he's only a creature, does not know God fully. Okay? And the Father was not eternally a Father. 
right? So these are horrible, horrible things. And it just shows you why it is that we need to be thoroughly acquainted with the scriptures and know them fully and be able to come to these passages and point them, point them out when people ask about them. Okay, so back to our question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is true God and true man in one person. He is the eternal Son of the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary to be our Savior and Lord. This God who became flesh in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, is the only true God, the Holy, Tr the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's important for us to recognize that the whole, the entirety of the Trinity did not take flesh, right? The Father did not take flesh. The Holy Spirit did not take flesh. It's only the Son. Only the Son. God in the second person of the Trinity, uh, the, son, the Son of God, took flesh for the redemption of the world. Okay, that's who Jesus is. He is God by nature and essence. He shares the very essence of God the Father. Um, and he has joined our human nature, he has he's received it into his own person. He has taken our human flesh and given it a place in his own life. And there is a great mystery there uh, th that, that we, by virtue of Christ's humanity, partake in God's own divine nature. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. But in any case, uh, Christ is uh, the second person of the Trinity, true God and true man in one person. Okay, um, yes, and so where do we see, so what we see in this question too is that the Trinity is in view here, okay? So there is one God in three persons, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where do we find this? In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so notice here in Jesus' words, he says, baptizing them in the name. He doesn't say names as if the three are separate. No, the three persons of the Trinity have, they all share one name. That's Yahweh, otherwise known as the Tetragrammaton, right? Yahweh. That's the name that they all share. They are united in one essence, and yet they are three persons, right? And I, uh, uh, I, I like the way one of our church fathers describes this. He, he says that the three persons are um, divided undividedly, right? They are united in their division. It's this odd but paradoxical way of describing how the three persons of the Trinity are in fact one uh, in essence, okay? So the, the Holy Trinity then is the source of all Christian doctrine. He is the source and origin of everything that we teach and learn and know from the Holy Scriptures. Um, we don't uh, receive anything. All, all true theology uh, has its origin and source in God himself. And it's important for us to recognize that. We don't make Christian doctrine on the basis of what men teach, um, uh, you, you know, apart from, the, of course, the apostles and the prophets. No, we recognize ultimately that God is where all things come from, like all, all the scriptures, all the teachings of the scriptures. He is their source. He is the one to whom they, from whom they come and um, to which they point ultimately. So real quick, any, any questions about this? I, I know I'm, I'm kind of throwing a lot out there. Any, any questions, any, anything unclear about what I've just presented there? All fairly straightforward from the scriptures themselves. 
Okay. So moving on to question three, um, on page 44, what has this one God done? What has this one God done? Okay, so we've talked about what is the Christian faith, who is Christ, now we're talking about what has this one God done, okay? And here we have really a synopsis of the Apostles' Creed, okay? God made all things and loves his creation, especially his human creatures. Beginning with our first parents, all humanity has rebelled against him and fallen into darkness, sin, and death. God the Father sent his only Son into the world to become man and to redeem and save humanity by his death and resurrection. God sent his spirit so that people might once again be his own through faith in his son, Jesus, who is the world's only hope, life, and salvation. Okay, so this is, we see here now, so we've, we've articulated the, the, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, and now what has this one God done? Okay, it's not just the Son who goes about the work of redemption of himself, it's not just the Spirit, it's not just the Father, all three persons of the Trinity are united in their works to bring about the salvation of the world. Okay? Now, in certain instances, the work of the Father uh, is, is emphasized, the work of the Son is emphasized, just in its own right, that he bled and died on the cross. It wasn't the Father who did that, it wasn't the Spirit who did that. Um, and likewise, the Spirit, the one who makes things holy, and who takes what is Christ and declares it unto us, as our Lord says, um, all three persons of the Trinity are at work in uh, the salvation of the world. Okay, um, the works of the Trinity are not divided; they are united. They are they are in harmony, in concert with each other. Okay, so um, just laying the again this foundation. So why did this one God have to redeem the world? Well, according to Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three. Um, we see that the wages of sin, or the recompense, the reward of sin, is death. Okay, so Adam and Eve, all the way back, our first parents, the head of humanity, fell into sin, and so where the, where the head goes, the body naturally follows, right? So Adam fell into sin by his transgression. He transgressed the commandment of God, and then in that very moment, his entire nature was changed. His entire, the entirety of his nature was fallen and bent against God, okay? And this is what we, what we mean when we say he was darkened, right? His mind was darkened, um, his spirit, his soul was darkened, and, and we, we have this idea of concupiscence, how we as fallen human beings are naturally bent away from the things of God um, and really bent in towards death, right? That is the ultimate goal. From dust we were taken, um, and to dust we shall return by virtue of our sin, right? God, or that sin leads us away from the things of God. And we all wrestle with this as Christians. It's, a, it's a really a, just a remarkable thing that St. Paul sets out in Romans chapter 7, how even we as Christians, united with God, wrestle with our sinful flesh. And what a powerful thing that flesh is. But in any case, so this is the wages of sin. Sin is lawlessness, okay? When Adam and Eve transgressed the commandment, they went, they, yeah, they transgressed the law. The, th the very commandment that God set down, they said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going we're to do what we want to do uh, by virtue of the temptation of the devil. So sin is lawlessness. It goes beyond, transgresses the commandment of the Lord. Um, and the result of that ultimately, finally, is death. 
Okay, and there's two kinds of death. There's physical death, where the uh, our soul is separated from our body, and then there's eternal death, where we are separated from God uh, in the life hereafter, and we suffer eternal torment away from God because of our sin. All right. So the wages of sin, the recompense, what do you get as a result of sin? That is death. It is death. And notice, but notice what St. Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so going back to our question, what has this one God done for the salvation of the world? Notice what Galatians chapter 4 says here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So by the work of the Spirit, Christ was conceived in the Blessed Virgin. He took our human nature. He became a man in every respect as we are, except without sin. So everything that is proper to human nature um, is Christ's, except for sin. You know, that means Jesus got hungry. He got tired. He had human emotions. He had a human mind. He had a human soul. All things Christ has taken into himself. He is a man as truly as we are. And he's also God, right? And he was born, he came into the world to bleed and die, to take the punishment of the law uh, that, that we rightly deserve because of our sin into himself. He bore that on the cross and um, he gives us his perfect righteousness. He fulfilled the law perfectly, without any defect, without the slightest deviation. He is the perfection of humanity in himself. And he gives us his righteousness by faith, by grace through faith. Okay, So that's what this one God has done. He has sent his son into the world, and, and, and by virtue of that, we, we all have the gates of paradise open to us. Okay, so that is the Christian faith. When we talk about the faith, objectively, that's what we're referring to. This body of teaching that has specific doctrinal content, right? Our faith is not formless and void. There's specific character. There's a shape to it, right? So what does it mean then? What, what, how, what is a Christian? What, what does it mean to say that you are a Christian? If somebody were to ask you, what, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? What is that? You see the answer on page 45. A Christian is someone who, by the power and work of the Holy Spirit through, this, through the Word of God, believes in and confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. Okay, so someone who confesses Jesus to be Lord. Now, Lord, it, it doesn't do any good if you call yourself a Lord and you're not Lord over anything. Like, I can go around and say I'm Lord of Faith Lutheran Church, but... That's, that would not be correct, of course. Uh, I could just be Lord of this, of, of the carpet here. Like, I have to, I have to, that's my point. I have to be Lord of something. I can't just say I'm Lord. Um, and so, Jesus, when he said, when we say that he's Lord, that is, Lord is a relational term. Okay? When we say that he is Lord, he's our Lord. We recognize him to be our superior, ultimate. Like, he is God, the divine one. Um, and he is our Lord. He exercises his authority over us, and we are beholden to him. And I like what, what the, the footnote comment here on page 44 says. I think this, this will help clear a lot of things up in our own day, too. Um, so the large catechism teaches us to say, I am God's creature. And Luther used this term uh, frequently 
in his writings to emphasize the creator-creature relationship. Creature expresses the Christian understanding that all of life exists because of and under God, the creator and Lord of life. So we belong to God. We are beholden to him. Um, and that, that really puts to rest this existentialist notion that we have to find and determine our own meaning in life. No, what the scriptures teach us is that we are creatures. We are created by a, a, a God, the true God. And we are beholden to him. Our whole life must be, should be oriented towards him and the things which he would have us do. Okay, so I, I really appreciate that point. Um, and this is what a Christian is, someone who believes the Word of God, receives the Holy Spirit, and becomes sons of God in Christ Jesus. A son of God in Christ Jesus. So let's turn to, to uh, Romans chapter 10, uh, just very briefly, and we'll look at where St. Paul uh, lays this theology out about how we become Christians. Or at least this is one of the places. Romans chapter 10. Okay, so in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, so question, does this mean that you have to believe in your heart and uh, you have this work, you have to say with your mouth, you physically have to say that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved? What is St. Paul getting at here? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. What is he saying? Just trying to give a simple, uh, basic uh, statement of faith that pe people could emulate and um, and follow. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's certainly part of it. That is certainly part of it. What I what I take Saint Paul to be saying here is that what you believe in your heart to be true about about Christ must not be at odds with what you confess with your mouth. Okay, the two need to be in agreement, you see. So what you say with your mouth and what you believe in your heart need to be one, right? You can't believe that Christ uh, is Savior, but say that he's not with your mouth, for example. Um, so that's, that's the idea here. So, okay, um, yes, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, okay? And then going on just a little bit further, um, we see St. Paul saying, um, let's see, how, will, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right? So it is, it is by the word of God, look at what he says in verse 17 here. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing. Okay, so we hear, with, it doesn't just mean that we have to hear it audibly. It may, you know, we can read the word. It's, you know, th that is a, a very viable uh, way that faith comes to us. 
God, the Holy Spirit, works faith into us. It is a gift from God that we come to faith, and it is hearing through the word of Christ, okay, through his apostles, through the prophets. This is the means by which we come to faith, okay? This is, this is how God has, has deigned that we do this. We don't come to faith immediately by a supernatural uh, revelation apart from God's word, no, that's, if we look at, you know, uh, Abraham, for example, the great patriarch of faith, he was going, he, you know, um, it was only when um, God came to him and revealed himself to him that Abraham was able to come to faith, right? And so what we have here in God's word is the means by which he would draw us to himself. It is God's self-disclosure. God reveals himself to us in his word, all right? And that is how we come to faith. Okay, any questions on that? Any, any, um, anything not clear on what I presented there? Right, and so um, I, think, I think it's very helpful what the, what the Catechism says here on page 45. Through baptism, a Christian is adopted into the Father's family, the church. Okay, so through holy baptism, as, so we have the Word of God as the means by which we come to faith, and then we have baptism as the means by which we are incorporated into Christ. We are joined and united to this to the Son of God in this supernatural um, mystery, is what it is. Um, that is how we are. We become sons of God. So, in truth, when we talk about justification, sanctification, uh, Christification, deification. All of these terms, first and foremost, they are a description of Jesus Christ. He is the deified one. He is the righteous one, the justified one, the sanctified one. And by faith, we partake in that which he is. Okay, so we are sons of God in Christ. We do not have sonship of ourself, but we participate in Christ's sonship by faith. And we are joined to him. And we receive all the gifts and blessings that he has by nature. Okay, very important point. Baptism is the gateway uh, to the Christian life. It is the way that we are initiated into this faith. And it is, um, it encompasses our whole life, right? In this faith, we are Christians. It's not, it's so, hey, I like to use this analogy. You don't, nobody says that um, they were, like if you are currently married, you don't say that I was married, right? The, the wedding ceremony happened, that's true, but you are married. It is a state of being, right? And we don't just say as Christians that I was baptized, even though that's true. We were baptized. God washed us free of all sin. He made us his own. He claimed us. Um, but we say as Christians that we are baptized. It is a present tense reality that we are baptized. And it continues throughout our life, uh, This the grace of baptism. Um, and the, the, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, well, it's kind of like, like if, I, if I walk away from the faith, I have to be rebaptized. be just like if husband and wife divorce, they have to be remarried. But this is not true for the Christian faith because when you're baptized, God does not walk away from his promises. He washes you and makes you clean. He calls you his own son uh, by faith. And that promise remains in effect regardless of what we do. Okay, God does not walk away from his promises. We can walk away. We can turn our back on God. But God does not turn his back on us, right? 
And it is only at the moment of death when our turning away from the Lord is made permanent, right? But um, baptism is God's unilateral action towards us, uh, saving us, washing us, and making us his own. Okay? So yes, uh, we have the word of God and we have baptism bringing us into this Christian faith. Um, and it is this living, this, when we talk about the subjective Christian faith, our own faith, it is a living and active trust in the promises of God. That is, properly speaking, the object of saving faith, or the promises of God for forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The promise of God uh, of forgiveness in his son Jesus. That is the object of saving faith. Okay? So, we have what is a Christian? What does it mean to confess Christ as my Lord? We kind of talked about that. And we also covered this on page 46 of the Catechism. Where do we learn about Jesus? Where do we learn about Jesus? And that is in the scriptures, the, 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 the sacred scriptures, the Bible. Okay, And um, it's really an amazing thing when you think about it. Uh, we know that Moses and the Exodus took place. There's good historical evidence to believe that it took place in 1446 B.C., and the last book of the Holy Scriptures, uh, the, the Apocalypse or the Revelation of St. John, uh, was written typically, they say, around 90 AD. And so this, this whole, what this is, it really is a library. Okay, the Bible is, is, is very much like a library with all these works of God, with many voices, and yet there is one source, there is one author, and that is God himself who inspired these Holy Scriptures. And um, as we see uh, on page 47, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay? And notice what 2 Peter 1.21 says. We, we had this in, our, in, the, in the divine service this morning. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And not just any men, there were certain men. Okay? God calls his prophets, he calls them into his service, just like he did with Isaiah, Ezekiel, with all the prophets of God. He calls them, he authorizes them to, to uh, speak his word, to speak on his behalf, and he gives them the very words which they are to speak. He puts his words into their mouth. Okay? And so when we read Holy Scripture, we are reading the very word of God himself. Okay? Everything that we see on these pages, everything in its entirety, from the very th words themselves, the grammar, the, the very thoughts that he gave the apostles and the prophets, all of this has its source and origin in God. Okay? Um, again, this is what we call verbal inspir inspiration. The very thoughts, the very words that you see on the page here, is the word they are the words of God okay it's a very important point um, because some people uh, got this really misguided notion that in the Bi the Bible contains the Word of God when you open this book you have to search and seek out what is actually the Word of God right in this book um, but that's not what we confess we confess with the scriptures that all scripture is God breathed the entirety of God's prophetic and apostolic work in in this book everything is inspired of God and is inerrant. So it cannot err and it does not err. Okay, it's breathed out by God. 
it, it cannot err, it's inerrant, it's, in, it's infallible rather, it's infallible, and it does not err. It cannot err and it does not err. Okay, so everything that it says, it is true and accurate and um, it is the word of God. Plain and simple. That's what, that is what we confess. Okay, and all of this, I should say, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so with the resurrection of Jesus, we see that uh, Jesus is who he says he is. He was sent from God. What he says and, and does are all true and faithful and wonderful. And um, he sends out his apostles to go and proclaim his message of salvation to all the world. Okay, so everything that the, the apostles teach, um, it is true on the basis of the resurrection. That is the fact, the historical fact um, that is, uh, you know, perhaps the, the one fact that really matters in all of existence in the entirety of the cosmos, that is the single most important fact uh, in existence, the resurrection of Jesus. Because he is who he says he is, and um, we have every reason to believe that this word of God is powerful, and it does what it says it will do. Okay, Very important point. Very important point. That is the ground of, his, of its authority. That's why we should take it at, why we should take God's word um, as it is, and do what it says we should do, and believe what it says we should believe. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know him to be true. Any questions? Any questions on that? I know we're running out of time, but any, any quick questions on that? Comments? Yes? Yes, well, that is a very great question, um, and it, it's deserving of a a much larger treatment than, than uh, I could give at this point. But, um, well, so we have the, uh, the, the apostles who were, who were commissioned by Christ to, to go out and proclaim uh, the message of salvation, right, the contents of, of Christ's teaching. And um, we have their written works. Um, in this, uh, the, the scriptures are their written works. And the, the church collected these things, right? So the, the apostles passed on their teachings um, uh, orally, verbally, and also with their, with their written word. And the two, um, the, the, the oral word is coordinated with their written word. You see, because the apostles were very much aware of their mortality. They knew that they were going to pass away, and they wanted to give the church um, an objective way to know what the truth is. Okay. So they wrote their, they wrote the, um, the teaching with this, which they had been given. Um, and, uh, the, the church, they, this was then copied over and over and over again, um, in many and various ways all throughout the known world. And so what we have are many thousands, in fact, of manuscripts that have been collated and collected and, um, translated. This is what we have here as a translation. The, the, the Bible as we have it now did not drop from heaven to, to here. Um, just, just like this. Okay. There are thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And there are some variations with the manuscripts, right? Um, but really, there is no, I should say this, there is no doctrinal, um, issue that these variations touch. Like, there's no doctrine of scripture, uh, that these variations in the manuscripts affect. Okay. So what the church did was they collected these things. They used them in the public service, the liturgy. Um, they were uh, transferred from one from one church to another. They were recognized by uh, by the church as legitimate and authoritative, and um, 
you know, there's probably a lot more than we can say, but uh, does that does that help you get some idea of how this took place? Yeah. Okay, good. Dale, of course, expected this. <laughs> well, now the right when we say that the scripture is inspired and inerrant, we're not talking about the copies, though, right? We're talking Correct. about the original Correct. writings, mm -hmm. because that's what right that's what was breathed out from God, and He knew exactly what would be written down right. when he inspired all those men to write. Right. So, and, and I think the argument is basically, well, if there's an error in there, it's only, God has only himself to blame for it. Right? Because, because the, the, the prophet, he didn't, he doesn't, he can't go back and say, oh, well, God, what God, he doesn't have anything to compare his work with. He doesn't have any way to correct it. And we don't either. We don't have any way to correct it. So if God put an error in there, it's his own fault. <laughs> and we know God doesn't Make mistakes. behave that way, right? right? Correct. Yeah. So that's why we think that the Bible is inerrant, right? It's, it's not because, oh, we checked, all the, we checked everything out and we found out there were no errors. It comes first from the fact that God is omniscient and he's not a deceiver. Correct. Yeah, yeah. God does not, uh, he does not deceive uh, he, his, his goal is not to deceive us, but to reveal himself and what he has done uh, in his great love and mercy, right? And so, yes, that is your, your uh, statement that, uh, well, it's really the autographs, the original manuscripts that, um, that are, um, that, you know, the, the, what the apostles set out to write themselves. Those manuscripts, which we don't have, those have not survived, but we do have copies. Now, the original manuscripts, the original autographs, are, are most certainly inspired, and um, it's that it's from that those manuscripts that all the others, all the copies, derive their authority, right? And and we can see the difference is we can go and when we're copying, we can go back and look at the original and find out we did it wrong. Mm -hmm, but there's exactly. no way we can find out, you know, oh, the original was written wrong. Well, yeah, I you mean, know that. So that that's why we say it's it's inerrant in the in the autographs. But we allow that there's variations in the in the right. copies. In the copies, yeah. somebody slipped on the pen mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and you know this is um, if you, if you ever tune into the the History Channel, I don't know why you would, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's so far it's just not. I, I don't know. It's just eminent. Just very frustrating to me to watch that channel. My blood pressure, my blood pressure just goes through the roof when I when I watch it. But uh, Bart Ehrman um, has has made a, a very fabulous living. Um, basically, with this argument saying that um, the, the scriptures, the way that they were passed down to us was basically just like a telephone game, okay? So you tell one thing to somebody, they tell kind of a distortion of that, maybe to the next person, the next person, next person. And then by the time you get down to the end of it, well, you know, it's so far gone from the original that, that it really just is not a faithful representation, right? But... The problem with that assertion is um, really that with all of these thousands and thousands, and by the way, we have more manuscript evidence, um, so the New Testament is better uh, attested to than the works of Plato, the works of Julius Caesar, Homer, all of these ancient works. I mean, the New Testament is the most reliable, historically, most reliable um, document in antiquity, period. Period. I mean, we have thousands and thousands. I mean, if you were to put all these other works, all the, the manuscript evidence we have for them combined, still the New Testament far and away um, surpasses what we have in these other works. Um, 
So I, I just wanted to make that point too. But um, you know, I, th I think the problem with Dr. Ehrman's uh, assertion, or his thesis rather, is that um, well, if if we have all of these thousands of manuscripts that all, and all this copying that took place over such a wide geographical area, right? Um, and we, they didn't have the internet, of course, back then. There was no way that they could um, unilaterally come down. I mean, that's that's my thesis on this: is that we, the church simply did not have the means to um, artificially suppress these other copies um, and and enact this sort of top-down uh, revision revisionary project of the holy scriptures when they were copied. Um, I just don't think that that's that that's really accurate. I don't think that that's that's very likely. And with all of the thousands of manuscripts that we have, you can very easily pinpoint what differences there might be, and um, why certain documents really just don't—they're not—they're not to be taken as authoritative. They're uh, clearly they don't. I mean, I should mention too, like one of the best manuscripts that we have, Codex Vaticanus, uh, which resides in the Vatican, of course. Um, you can look at the the quality of that translation of that um, transcription rather and see that it was very clearly the work of a professional scribe right it's very carefully um, transcribed uh, from from the documents that he had and um, you know we should also recognize the fact that the, the people that were copying these manuscripts were, were very pious they were faithful they were very very much concerned with passing on uh, what what it was that they had received. Okay, it doesn't mean that they were perfect, right? There are variations in the manuscripts, but uh, you know these were f pious, faithful men who were very much concerned with what it was that they were doing. Okay. Yes. Okay, so out of the sixty-six books that are in the Bible, there's obviously more books that were written, mm -hmm. right? So how did you? not you. How did they go through and decide why this book got left out versus the other ones? I mean, if we're saying that all of it is God-breathed, right. then how do you go through and say, we're going to keep Matthew and we're going to kick out <laughs> this guy because... Right. Yeah, well, the church recognizes the apostolic authority, for example, of Matthew. Um, Matthew is, uh, it was, he, he was, he is an apostle, and these other works, like the, especially the Gnostic Gospels, Gospels that you that we see in the uh, there was a, a discovery of um, a Gnostic library in Nag Hammadi, uh, Egypt, not near the Nile River, and um, you know that people are very quick to say, well, why weren't they, these were suppressed by the church? Uh, these should be included in the canon, right? Well, if you look at the internal evidence of these Gnostic Gospels, you can see very clearly that they are at odds with the the rest of the apostolic witness, right? What we know to be true, written by St. Paul, St. Peter, uh, Matthew, I mean, all of the, you know, what we recognize as the books of the Bible, right? Um, you know, the, like, for example, one of the things in the, in the Gnostic Gospels is that Jesus, um, after he was raised, he appeared to various people, but without his body. He appeared to them as they were able to receive him. Right, so there's this sort of formlessness to to who Jesus is now. Uh, like he appeared to one as a woman, he appeared to one as an infant, or like a, a cloud with uh, bright lights coming out. I mean, so you can see that that's very much at odds with the the message and the teachings of uh, what we recognize to be the true scriptures. Right, 
So there's internal and external evidence against these other books that, you know, people say should have been included, but, but they weren't, right? So it was the, the work of the apostles. That's what, that's, what, that's, that's what the scriptures say, too. If you turn to um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Yeah. So in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. So no one other than the apostles who were directly commissioned and sent by Christ himself have any standing. They have no authority to write these other books. Okay. So, um, you know, the Gospel of Thomas. A, a lot of times people in the ancient world, they would, they would use names of the apostles to, to try and claim some sort of authority that they wouldn't otherwise have. And then you see in the, in the manuscript itself reasons why it shouldn't be included in the canon. Does that make sense? Does that help everybody? Yes. There is one other thing to say about that. Uh, and that is, what they were looking for was apostolicity. The fact that yeah. the, 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 the books were written by an apostle or, or written under the supervision of an apostle. So, right. you know, yeah. uh, uh, Mark gets in because it's believed uh, um, Peter... Right. Basically, the Mark wrote it with Peter looking over his shoulder. Correct. Things like that. So, and the reason for that is that Jesus explicitly promised that the the apostles would have would would be able to recall his teaching, mm -hmm. right? So, right. So, so, right. And the reason we have the Old Testament, except the Old Testament, is because Jesus said the Old Testament's good, right? So it all comes down to Jesus, right? Right. Yeah. Big surprise. Uh, and, <laughs> and and and. Now, you might say, okay, but that's fine, but why, why don't we include Thomas? Why don't we find out, did, did Thomas write Thomas or not? Because if Thomas wrote Thomas, it goes in, right? But the difficulty is, nowadays, how do we figure that out? Mm -hmm. We're in no position to figure that out today. Now, in the early councils, when they thought, when they thought about this, right, they, they had the writings of people that knew mm -hmm. the apostles. They had, you know, lots of things that we don't even have anymore. Right. right, and so they were in a much better position to figure out. Right, is this a book mm -hmm. of of you know Peter? Is this a book of Paul? Is this a book of right. you know John? Whatever. We can't do that anymore. We, we you know anybody who says the Gospel of Thomas belongs in because reasons has no reason. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, and a lot of a lot of times, as I said, I mean the reason that they that they want certain books. To be included in the canon is because their their ultimate aim is to um, impugn the credibility of the Bible and the church as an institution, right? Yes, to sow confusion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's, it's the work of the devil. It is very much. Yeah, well said. Well said. I agree. Um, yeah, I should probably we should probably move on. I, I want to cover just a little bit more um, material here before we before we close up. But uh, yes, thank you for that, Dale. I appreciate it. So yes, we can be confident, um, on page 47, we can be confident that the Bible is the authoritative and inerrant word of God. Okay, so the gospel, so in the gospel, the central message of the gospel, God promises us new life on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's promises alone create faith in Jesus Christ. 
Okay, Jesus himself, whom we trust, declares that all the scriptures are God's own words, completely dependable in all that they teach without error. Okay, so um, we have a, a, a um, what we recognize to be our formal principle are the holy scriptures. Okay, the word, the, the prophetic and apostolic word of God, breathed out by God's called and sent apostles and prophets. Right, that is. Um, that is the only source and norm of all Christian uh, teaching and life. Okay, that's what we confess to be true. All of this, of course, as I said, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, because by that we know that he is who he says he is, that his word is faithful and dependable, and when he sends out his apostles uh, to, to, to proclaim his message, we know that what they write are true, the things that they write are true. And, um, and under point A, as you see on page 47, Jesus uses the Old Testament scriptures as God's word. Okay, uh, It is written, have you not read? He assures us that the scripture cannot be broken in John 10, 35. So the Old Testament canon is, uh, at least in the mind of Jesus, complete. Right. So that's, that's an important point too. Um, Jesus claims the same authority for himself. He says, I say to you, truly, truly, I say, Right? This is Jesus claiming divine authority for himself, that we should listen to what his word is. Right? So all of this very, very much, uh, very important, very crucial, in fact, for us in our life as Christians. And I would point out, too, the, the note on, at the bottom of page 47. We believe the word of God has the power in itself to convince the reader or hearer of its authority, because it is God's word, it is self-authenticating. The Word of God does what it says. Okay, so the Word of God is powerful in and of itself. It is a living Word. Right? It is a mysterious, living, holy thing. Um, and we should see it certainly that way. Um, it is powerful to do what it says. Um, okay, um, so on page 48, do we use human reason to understand the Bible? Well, obviously we do, but there's a twofold sense in way in which we should um, uh, speak here. So there's what we understand to be a ministerial sense of reason. So the, our, our human reason that God has endowed us with um, serves as a minister to the text, right? It doesn't stand um, over the text as its magister or its master. It does not, our human reason does not stand over the text to determine what is true or not. Okay, and you you realize just how how wrongheaded that is very quickly when, for example, uh, you, like the Unitarians, for example, they look at the doctrine of the Trinity and they say, well, that doesn't make sense to my reason, so we're going to cast that out, right? This is the Thomas Thomas Jefferson Bible, right? He he takes out everything that he doesn't think makes sense, um, and well, he's just mangled the entire Christian faith. Okay, um, so. We have a ministerial sense of reason and a magisterial sense of reason. We, as faithful, uh, godly Christians, use our reason ministerially, right? We hold the text over ours, over all things. Uh, that is reason, tradition, authority, like human authority and human experience. All of those things are subservient to the scriptures. Okay, the scriptures uh, place all those other things uh, under them. Does that make sense? So um, as soon as you have experience saying, well, because of my experience, I don't think that that's true, what the Bible says. Well, there you run into a big problem. Same thing with human authority. You know, these Dr. Doolittle who wrote his PhD on whatever, he says, well, according to my research and my authority, 
um, at the university of wherever. I don't think that this is true, therefore it's not. Well, then you get a huge problem. Okay, so the scriptures are to be kept over all things and everything else, all other sources, uh, ways of knowing, for example, uh, reason, uh, tradition, all those things that I listed are all, again, subservient to the scriptures. They're all subject to the scriptures. Okay, very important point. Um, and I, th I guess lastly, I, know, I see we're out of time here. Um, I would simply talk a little bit just about law and gospel. Now, of course, <laughs> this, of course, deserves it. I mean, you, you could never stop learning about this. In fact, Luther says that whoever knows law and gospel should immediately uh, be made doctor of the church and uh, set over everybody because this is the, the hardest and most difficult art to learn as a Christian. Okay. So we should, um, we should recognize that there is one word of God, there's one word that must be distinguished between law and gospel. Okay, so the law is the revealed will of God uh, that directs and guides all human behavior, tells us what God requires of us. That is the law. It tells us what God requires of us, and the gospel tells us what Christ has done uh, for us. Okay, that's so very important. Uh, very important. Now, it's, it's, it's not fruitful, in my opinion, to talk about law and gospel in the abstract um, because it can lead us into some real choppy waters, in my opinion. Um, so law and gospel really should be, is, uh, is best seen in terms of application to, of a text to a certain, uh, to, to the reader, right? So first of all, when we look at the scriptures, we have to determine what do the scriptures actually say? What do the words on the page mean? Right? What is it? What do they mean in their immediate context within that chapter, within the book in which they're found, um, and then in the scriptures as a whole? Right? What do these words mean in their relation to each other? You know, words have meaning in the context in which they're used. We have to understand all of those things before we can then ask, okay, how is this law or how is it gospel? And there, you know, Jesus, you really see some very interesting things come out of Jesus' mouth all over the place, um, like especially where he says. Blessed are the meek, for example, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that word law or gospel? Well, it depends on your relation to that word, right? If you're not meek, then it, it condemns you, right? But if you are, then it is gospel, of course, right? So it's, it depends on your relation to that word. How is it being applied to the hearer? Okay, so in any case, we, there is one word of God, that is to be distinguished in terms of law or gospel, the things which God requires of us, and the things which uh, God has revealed to us that Christ has done for us and for our salvation. Okay, uh, very important points. I hope that um, th this has helped you. Oh, I see we're out of time, um, but in any case, these are very fundamental um, things that we've been considering today. I hope that uh, this has been edifying to you in some way and that you'll go back and, and review these things um, and, and take this upon yourself to, to learn this um, thoroughly, to teach your children especially, and um, to ask questions about things that aren't clear, to, to dig deeper, and to, to really make this faith your own. You know, when we're confirmed, um, we, we do publicly do that. Our confirmands are preparing to uh, make that faith which they've been given uh, in baptism, to publicly declare that to be their own through the special rite called confirmation. So use this resource. I commend it to you, and uh, we'll see you again next week. The Lord be with you.